Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, joining the show today from Tunisia. And this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. Today, Dr. Ian Worthington joins the show again on May 27th, 2021. Dr. Worthington joined the show and we had a conversation about King Philip II of Macedon. In today's episode, Professor Worthington is back on the show and we're going to have a conversation about the period of time in which Ptolemy I reigned in ancient Egypt. Dr. Worthington is Professor of Ancient History in the Department of History and Archaeology at Macquarie University, based in Australia. He has written many publications over his career, including authoring the books Ptolemy I, King and Pharaoh of Egypt, which was published by Oxford University Press, and Athens After Empire, a history from Alexander the Great to the Emperor Hadrian, which was also published by Oxford University Press. And Dr. Worthington joins the show today from Australia. Welcome back on the show, Ian. Thank you very much, Andrew. Nice for you to have me back. Thank you. Good to connect with you as always, Ian. So to create enough background and context for the conversation, Ian, and then we'll work our way into the details. And uh, as we discussed, and as I mentioned in the intro, we're going to focus more on the period of time that Ptolemy the first reigned in ancient Egypt as a king or pharaoh. But before we get there, I want to ask a question that's more more broad, and and um, part of that reign can certainly come into your um, into your response. Who who was Ptolemy the first? Uh, that's actually a very good question. That, that's one of those questions where you expect a very uh, quick, precise answer, uh, and you're not going to get one, uh, because we don't know a whole lot about him. Uh, he was one of Alexander's boyhood friend, Alexander the Great's boyhood friends, although he was at least uh, nine or ten years older than Alexander. We don't know precisely who Ptolemy's father was. Uh, At one stage he put out the rumour, I believe he put out the rumour, that he was an illegitimate son of Philip II of Macedonia, who was um, Alexander the Great's father. Uh, There's another story that um, Philip had a liaison uh, with a courtesan that uh, resulted in Ptolemy, Uh, so that might well support the idea of the uh, illegitimacy there. Well, there's another one where um, Ptolemy's parents married and then eventually Ptolemy ended up at the Macedonian court uh, where he became a royal page. Uh, these are lads aged 14 to 18 who, um, uh, who serve uh, in, uh, w- with the king in a sort of military education. It's like training the next um, um, you know, cohort of military commanders. Uh, and that's where we would have got to know Alexander and befriended him and then stuck with him throughout Alexander's Asian campaign. Uh, but, but to say exactly who his father was, who his mother was, uh, when he was born, this sort of thing, uh, we're, we're pretty much in the dark. It's guesswork, unfortunately. And so can you summarize? So he becomes a king of Egypt. And like I said, we're obviously going to focus more on that period leading up to that period. Uh, and I want to cover at some some point soon what what you believe and scholars believe is the inflection point where he is now reigning ancient Egypt as a sovereign. What were the circumstances leading up to that point? Um, 
Well, Ptolemy was ruling Egypt before he became king. Uh, he didn't take the title of king until 306 BC, uh, and he moved to Egypt in 322. So, so that's what 15, 16 years or so later. Uh, Ptolemy was, was one of Alexander's royal bodyguards. This was a position of some importance. Uh, he was not a general. Occasionally he was a commander of troops, uh, but he wasn't one of Alexander's generals, as a lot of people mistakenly think. Uh, he was a, a royal bodyguard, handpicked by Alexander himself. And to be honest, um, Andrew, if Alexander hadn't died when he did, we would, uh, if he'd lived for another 20, 30 years or so, Ptolemy would have been just a name to us. Uh, because he was in, in the aftermath of Alexander's death of Babylon in 323, uh, his successors, in other words, his senior staff, carved up his empire. And in that carve-up, Ptolemy uh, put his hand up and took over Egypt. And so he probably moved there a year later because there were some shenanigans at the court while this settlement um, kicked into place. So really, Ptolemy had his eyes set on Egypt for quite some time. Uh, he got it when the empire was carved up when uh, Alexander the Great died, uh, and he moved there. But during this period, uh, there were still kings of Macedonia. There was a dual monarchy between Philip III and Alexander IV, who was the, the infant son of uh, Alexander the Great. So that made Ptolemy satrap. Uh, in effect, he was ruler. I mean, every, he pulled all the strings, but technically, uh, he didn't become king of Egypt until 306, when all of those successors, the, uh, the senior staff who divided up the empire, um, in 307, 306, one of them started calling himself king, and then all the others followed suit. So Ptolemy was ruling Egypt before he actually became king. So it's just a matter of nomenclature. And for everyone listening, an entire episode was created recently with Dr. Charlotte Dunn of the University of Tasmania on those those events. We spent uh, pretty much an episode on 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 them that that would be leading up to the point where Dr. Worthington and I are chatting about today. So if anyone wants to, that's really fun. That's a really fun. I don't have to go over all that stuff. It's very complicated. That's for sure. It's it it is uh, it is it, it actually it is it is right. It it actually is, and um, it it does take some time to really. I think um, when when scholars speak about it, it takes some time to treat it that that area because there's so many figures and so many factions and all that kind of stuff. So if anyone wants to look up that episode, if you search. Um, something like Ptolemy the First, I believe it's Ptolemy the First's rise to power, or the Ptolemy's, I believe it's the Ptolemy's rise to power, or something like that. You'll find it. It's with Dr. Charlotte Dunn of the University of Tasmania. So 306 is the inflection point. So what are the, um, is, so actually I want to ask this question before we, we, we continue with the chronology, Ian. What are the main sources then for uh, Ptolemy's reign in ancient Egypt. What do scholars predominantly rely on to understand the 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 events of those of that reign? Well, there's actually not a lot. In fact, one time when I told someone uh, that I was that I was writing a book on Ptolemy, the person said, "How on earth can you do that when we have no evidence?" Uh, and the 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 evidence we have is very scattered. Uh, a lot of it comes from, from much later, but there's nothing uh, of the sort of narrative sources that we have 
for, say, Alexander the Great or even his father, Philip II. Uh, there's no uh, Thucydides, for example, that we have for the Peloponnesian War. Uh, so often we, are, we have to look at uh, events outside of Egypt where Ptolemy interacts with them to find out what's going on. Um, there, we do have a couple of very valuable Egyptian sources. Uh, one's called the Satrap Stele, which was put up by uh, the priests of, of uh, Butho in the northwest uh, del uh, delta area of Egypt. Um, and that's a hieroglyphic inscription. It, it tells us a, a few things about Ptolemy, including by the time it's put up, that he was already living in Alexandria and, uh, uh, and, uh, and what his powers were. Uh, but, but the amount of information we have is quite sparse, so that makes it really difficult to, to build up a coherent picture of Ptolemy. So sometimes it's guesswork. Uh, there are blanks, and all we can say is he may have done this, or he probably did do this, um, this, that, and the other. Um, it's also important, you, you, you're talking about 306 when he, when he actually called himself king. That was only a name change. Uh, he'd been ruling Egypt, as I said, for quite some time. Uh, it wasn't as though he suddenly took on additional powers. It wasn't as if there was suddenly a, a, a great coronation. He simply carried on doing what he'd been doing for the last uh, dozen years or more. In fact, what, what's interesting is that uh, Ptolemy had suffered, suffered quite a reversal with his uh, imperialistic plans a couple of years earlier in 309, 308. Uh, and so you would think that, uh, that having to retreat from Greece, because uh, one, one of my theories is, is that he was a second Alexander, that he wanted uh, to become king of Macedonia, and, and indeed he, he attempted to become king. And we can talk about that if you want as well. Because uh, often people have this view of Ptolemy as being um, a defensive imperialist, in other words, someone who only gets involved on the international scene when he has to, you know, if someone invades Egypt. Uh, or is a successionist, in other words, he takes over Egypt and he just wants to rule the place and stay, stay away from everywhere, everybody else. Um, I don't think that's true at all. I think he was a conscious imperialist. He wanted to become king of Macedonia, but he, he attempted to, to invade Greece and to become king of Macedonia, and it, and it was a failure. And you would think that, that most people would say, well, I'm just going to fade into the sunset now. But in actual fact, two years after that, he starts calling himself king uh, because all of his um, rivals, all, all of his former comrades uh, are calling themselves king. So he doesn't want to be left out of it. Okay. So is there, um, you'd mentioned Ian at 306, around 306, other individuals began calling themselves king. king. Is, is, that the main, is that the main significance uh, about that time in which scholars believe that's why Ptolemy then gave himself that title as well? And or were there other circumstances at play such as there was less w wars, conflicts, amongst the, the, the factions that had succeeded Alexander III's life? Well, I, actually, the conflicts were accelerating, uh, and this was because of um, and, uh, a guy called Antigonus Monophthalmos, Antigonus the One-Eyed, uh, who had ambitions to, uh, to rule the, the same sort of empire that Alexander had. Uh, he was never satisfied with what he got in the settlement of Babylon. Uh, and so um, he really, he's a driving force behind these wars of successes, wars of the successes. He's a driving force until 301, 
when he's defeated in battle, the Battle of Ipsus, uh, and he's killed there, but then his son Demetrius Polyotates, Demetrius the besieger, takes over. And Demetrius at one stage will actually become uh, king of Macedonia before he's, uh, he's kicked out. Uh, so uh, against the, the backdrop of Ptolemy's reign in Egypt, Ptolemy's rule in Egypt, is the war of the successes. It's, it's ongoing. There are settlements, but they're really just hiccups in these, these 40 years from, from Alexander's death to about the early 280s. Uh, these, um, these bloody conflicts that rip the Mediterranean world apart. And Ptolemy is part of them, and he's ambitious, which means, of course, he's going to come into conflict with these other guys at some stage or another, and they also will come into conflict with him. Um, Egypt is, uh, is seen as quite a prize in many respects. It's easily defensible. Uh, it has, uh, it's very fertile, it's wealthy, uh, and so it's quite a catch. And that's one reason why Ptolemy put his hand up for it in Babylon, because he knew that he was going to be uh, able to, to build up his manpower reserves, build up his financial reserves in a, in a country that was away from the hotspots where the other successors would be focusing their attention, that's Asia and, uh, and Greece and Macedonia. Uh, so it means that no matter what Ptolemy did or didn't do, sooner or later the others would come after him. So uh, he's, he's part of the wars of, of the successors, even if he didn't want to be, uh, but he's also ambitious, he's an imperialist, he wants to, to become king of Macedonia. And so he is constantly vying for this position with the others as well. Uh, so he's no different from, from the rest of them, from Antigonus Monothalmus, from Lysimachus, from Cassander, uh, the son of Antipater, who becomes uh, king of Macedonia uh, a couple of years after his father dies. So Ptolemy is, uh, is really uh, focused on, on building up Egypt, but at the same time, uh, he wants to make Egypt more of a Mediterranean power than just a, a North African one. Uh, it hasn't really uh, had been that Mediterranean power until the Ptolemies come along. That, that's a real game changer when Ptolemy takes over. So his foreign policy uh, is geared to promoting Egypt in the Mediterranean. Uh, his personal policy, shall we to call it that, is geared to him becoming a second Alexander. And his domestic policy, of course, is geared to keeping Egypt passive and increasing the prosperity of the country. So all those sorts of things bring him into conflict with the others. Uh, and, and as I keep saying, he's doing all these things long before he takes on that official title of king. Let's go back then in the conversation to the foreign policy at at some point, the foreign policy and affairs, because it sounds like uh, he spent a lot of time and effort during his reign on those events. Before we go there, what's known then about his domestic policy and and efforts domestically within within the state? I think what what we notice the most about Ptolemy is that he's, he's very careful to include the Egyptians. He's very careful about trying to endear himself to his own people, that's the Macedonians, the Greeks, as well as the Egyptians. And that's a very hard act to do, obviously, because he's coming in as, as a foreign ruler, uh, as conqueror, um, and nobody likes to be conquered. So he's got his work cut out for him in that respect. But I think that 
I think it's it's a similar policy to all the other successes, you know, Selyukas in Syria, for example, Lysimachus in Thrace, is that they, these people have been with Alexander. They've seen what he's done, but more importantly, they've seen how he's gone about doing things, especially when it comes to dealing with a multicultural subject population. But let's not forget that Alexander's empire stretched from, from Turkey to Pakistan, and then all points south to, to Egypt. So th this was a phenomenal, phenomenal achievement in a decade. Um, but Alexander, of course, came into contact with a lot of different people from different backgrounds, different ethnicities. And how he dealt with them was not always uh, successful. Uh, it did lead to revolts. Uh, his constant attempt to, to spread Greek civilization at the expense of local culture uh, was certainly something that, uh, that the, um, the natives re uh, rebelled against. Uh, but also, um, Alexander never really grasped the importance of allowing subjects to have their own religious uh, their own religion, of allowing subjects to do their own thing, basically, but more importantly, respecting it. So, uh, and Alexander was also projecting an image of himself. He had pretensions to personal divinity, and that also didn't go down well uh, with his own men, with his own army. In fact, Alexander lost touch with the rank and file of his army towards the end of his reign. So these are valuable lessons for his successors to, to apply when they come to ruling their own territories. And I think this is why Ptolemy is so successful, because he doesn't try to be another Alexander at home. You never, I mean, one of the criticisms against Alexander was he was starting to dress uh, like a Persian, and his men resented that. They were starting to indulge in Eastern luxuries, uh, like perfumes, um, fragrant baths, things like that, and Macedonians just didn't do that. Uh, and Ptolemy, we notice that uh, he, he becomes phenomenally wealthy, of course, because as I said, Egypt is a very wealthy country, but Ptolemy remains the Macedonian warrior king. He dresses in simple clothing. Uh, he drinks uh, what is called rough wine. Uh, in other words, this is not, you know, $100 a bottle, you know, chateau to something or other. Uh, his meals are very simple. And because of him focusing on the fact that uh, he's a Macedonian and he's not got any airs and graces, uh, his people respect him and stay loyal to him. Then at the same time with the Egyptians, he respects their religious customs, he respects their social uh, beliefs and social customs. He allows them freedom of religion. Uh, he even allows them their own legal system. They have their own courts uh, in rural areas. Now there's no mistaking that, that, that Ptolemy is ruler of Egypt. Uh, I mean, all power is concentrated in his hands, but he's very careful to, to make sure that his, his subjects uh, also have their own culture, their own beliefs, that there's no attempt to try to prohibit these, which could well lead to uh, a revolt. That's the last thing Ptolemy wants. He does introduce a number of administrative measures, especially taxes and things. These are exploitive. Uh, but then again, uh, you know, he is an autocratic ruler. Um, but, but it is significant that uh, at the end of his reign, uh, power passes to his son Ptolemy II. There is no revolt, there's no insurrection, there's nothing like that. The Egyptians uh, accept the fact that the Ptolemaic dynasty is here to stay. And so they, uh, once Ptolemy dies in 283 and Ptolemy II takes over as sole ruler, sole king, 
they're happy to live under him as well. It's not until you get to the later Ptolemies, like three and four, that they start to to um, they you know they, they start to be too exploitive of the people. Uh, they uh, the the priests start to become more powerful in society, and, and they sort of galvanise the Egyptians into trying to resist uh, the later Ptolemies. But Ptolemy one is is always the success story when it comes to looking at his relations with his own people. There were several several times in the past where Egypt would have been a, a regional um, power. I think of like Ram Ramesses II, for instance, and right. and uh, Egypt has a very long list of uh, dynasties and and uh, associated uh, pharaohs that that ruled the, um, the 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 country over the over the years. Is it known to what degree? Because you mentioned a few different things there. He's well, he's from Macedonia. Um, you said that he, um, and again, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but appreciated Persian type customs. He's in he's in Egypt, so so and you 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 treated um, some things about uh, policies and um, so inhabitants in in uh, in various cases. You were saying uh, continued with their customs. Is anything known about him personally to what degree he assimilated to Egyptian customs? He doesn't seem to have done to that extent, as I was saying. That that's something that might well have uh, caused uh, displeasure, dissatisfaction amongst his men, and he didn't want to go the way that Alexander did. As I as I said, it wasn't Ptolemy, by the way, that was using uh, perfumes and scented oils and things. That was Alexander, uh, and and uh, the men didn't like that. And so I think, as I was saying, that the the other successors, including Ptolemy, saw. Uh, the, the, the positives that Alexander was doing, but they also saw the negatives and they learned from them. And so when they came to rule their own territory, they were going to make sure that they didn't fall into, shall we call it, the Alexander trap. And so that's why, uh, I mean, Ptolemy could have had very lavish banquets. He could have eaten, uh, he could have eaten and drank the most um, exorbitant food and wine, but instead he kept it plain because that's what Macedonians did. Uh, so there was, there was no attempt on his part to become like an Egyptian. So we, we might say that he liked Egyptians, but he didn't, he didn't become one. He, didn't, he wasn't influenced like that. The, the only influence we might um, talk about was in religion, when he wanted to try and introduce a new god uh, to, to bind the people together. He, he wanted to try and unite uh, his Greeks, Macedonians, uh, Thracians, Jews, Egyptians, together worshipping one God. He thought this was a way of, of promoting unity, and that's why we get the introduction uh, of the, or creation even, of the god Serapis, uh, who is a, a mishmash of the Greek Zeus and Pluto uh, with the, the sacred bull Apis. And this is deliberate. This, this is a way of fusing together Greco- uh, Greco-Egyptian religion into one, into, into one worship of one God, uh, and also uh, with the belief in the afterlife. Uh, this, you know, Apis um, upon dead, uh, the sacred bull uh, when dead is identified as Osiris, and so that's the, uh, that, that's the, the lean towards the Egyptians there about the belief in the afterlife. And then Pluto, of course, on the Greek side, Pluto has gone to the underworld. Uh, so there, there's a tip of the hat to him as well. Uh, so this this is one area where we see um, 
Ptolemy certainly using Egyptian culture here, Egyptian religion, fusing it onto, onto Greek religion and vice versa. But it's got a, a, a secular reason, uh, which is to try and unite the people together. And of course, if they're united in religion, then they're less likely to, uh, to want to overthrow the existing ruler. Uh, his, his true colors, of course, are revealed in the, the museum and the library, uh, which uh, he founded. Um, he's also responsible for turning Alexandria into the, the premier city, shall we say, of the Hellenistic period. I mean, Alexander the Great only intended Alexandria to be a, probably a trading post. I mean, he had no idea about turning it into a capital. That was all Ptolemy's doing. Uh, and it's in, and again, this is part of it of trying to get the edge over his rivals in the wars of the successors. You know, they they might have these grandiose armies, whereas here is Ptolemy who has got Alexander's city, Alexandria, and he's making it so much better. And then, of course, he kidnaps Alexander's corpse on its way to 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 Greece and buries it in first in Memphis and then in Alexandria. So this is this again is to give him clout in in the wars against his rivals. Um, but we notice with the museum and the library, the library in particular, it's always Greek intellectuals who work there. It's not until you move into the third century and probably close on a, a century after Ptolemy that you start to see Egyptian. Uh, scholars working at the library. So you can see that there's this, uh, this, this two-pronged approach, shall we say. One is involve the Egyptians as much as you can, but two, let's not forget that, hey, I'm from, I'm from Macedonia, I'm from Greece, and I'm ruler, and so our, our culture always needs to be up front and center. Is anything known about the amount of immigration that would have occurred into Egypt from Macedonia during his reign. Yeah, I think there was a lot of it because uh, Ptolemy. I mean, the, the the Egyptians would always outnumber the non-Egyptians. That's obvious because Egypt was their country. Uh, but we do see that um, that Ptolemy is um, quite open. Uh, in fact, he's very encouraging to people from from Thrace, from Asia Minor, from Greece to move to Egypt. He settles them uh, in farms, often in rural areas, so he doesn't have them all sort of living in cities. Um, but initially, though, um, that immigration policy, to call it that, is really geared towards serving soldiers. It's really geared to, to building up his manpower resources. So it's not a case of um, come to Egypt and you can um, have some land and start growing grapes or something like that. It's not that. It's not that kind of immigration at first. It's come to Egypt, bring your family, serve in the army, uh, and then when uh, when it's time to retire, you can stay here. So it's not until a little bit later on that you start to see immigrants coming in who don't have that military role. What's known about the number of marriages that he had and children? He mentioned he and you mentioned he had a son. Uh, earlier who succeeded him and, and that, that's probably uh, an area we can wrap up the conversation today um, but what's known about the number of marriages and, and number of children that he had? Um, number of children I don't know for sure uh, it's like uh, I, I mean a lot of king, a lot of rulers of course had dalliances and, and numerous offspring so we can't act, we can't just say well he had uh, you know three sons and seven daughters uh, he was married four times uh, the, the, the first lady um, was a courtesan from uh, Athens called Thais, and her claim to fame 
And so she accompanied the Macedonian army when it invaded Asia. Uh, and at Persepolis in 330, which was the, the great Persian palace center of Darius and Xerxes, uh, Thais, according to the story, was the one who suggested to Alexander and his drunken companions that they, that they set fire to the palace. And that's one uh, reason why the, fa uh, the, the palace, the great palace there at Persepolis burned to the ground. And it was, this is uh, just a story probably, I mean, the burning was symbolic to show this is the end of the Persian Empire and Alexander is now the new ruler of Asia. Uh, but that was the, the story associated with Thais, is that she was the one who suggested burning it down. And Ptolemy subsequently married her, um, and then she would kept matches one out of her reach, that's for sure. Uh, and then um, uh, a few years later in 324 at Susa, uh, the modern Shush, uh, there occurred this famous mass marriage, uh, where Alexander and 90 odd of his senior staff married Persian noble ladies. Uh, and um, um, Ptolemy was given a lady by the name of Atacama, who got no idea if he had children by her. We were told, by the way, this marriage was forced on everyone, and that only one of them, um, after when Alexander died, only one, Seleucus, who became ruler of Syria and founded the Seleucid dynasty, only he stayed married to his wife. All the others divorced their wives because they didn't want to be married to them. And then the, the two main um, wives, one is Berenice, uh, who uh, came across from the mainland to, uh, to marry Ptolemy. Uh, they had sons and daughters, including a son called Ptolemy, Ptolemy Caranus. Uh, and unfortunately, Berenice brought with her um, a, a waiting lady to I'm sorry, Eurydice, what I'm talking about. Eurydice came across. This is Eurydice, was the first one. Mm -hmm. uh, and she brought with her a, a waiting lady by the name of Berenice, uh, who had an affair with Ptolemy, and he ended up marrying her. And Berenice is the one who has a son also called Ptolemy, but he is the actual um, successor. So even though Berenice's son Ptolemy is younger than uh, the son of Ptolemy and Eurydice, um, Berenice is able to persuade her husband to, uh, to tap her son Ptolemy as the next ruler, and that's how Ptolemy II uh, takes over. So, so he's married four times. Uh, the Macedonians, as we know, were bigamists. They didn't, um, they didn't divorce one, one wife before marrying another. Philip II, Alexander's father, was married seven times, for example. Uh, and nobody would, nobody would have uh, raised eyebrows at this. But it's not until the reign of Ptolemy II, so in other words, Ptolemy, Ptolemy and, and um, Berenice's son, Ptolemy too. it's not until uh, his reign that we start to get the brother-sister marriages starting, and that's when, uh, when Ptolemy too married his sister Arsinoe. So he had at least one son, both uh, with both the, the, the women that you mentioned that came from, I think you said mainland, so uh, like the kingdom of Macedon, they came, they came over the, the sea. And then both were named, yeah, and both were named Ptolemy. Is that correct? Yeah, it's very, yeah, it gets confusing. I used to say, it's like French history. If you have to, if you're asked to name a king, uh, you've got a 50% chance of getting it right if you say either Louis or Henri. 
Uh, and it's the same with Egyptian rulers. If you can't remember the name, just say Ptolemy, because the chances are you've got it right, because uh, there, are so, there are so many of them, they all have the same names. But yeah, so, so the son, uh, the elder Ptolemy, Ptolemy Coranus, the son of, of Ptolemy and, and Eurydice, will actually uh, will leave court. I mean, he feels pretty spurned, obviously, that, that, um, that his father's rejected him. At one stage, he'll actually become king of Macedonia. Uh, and then he'll die uh, against the um, the invasion of the Gauls who, who come down in the, the two ages. Um, so uh, it's Ptolemy II who is born on, uh, on the island of Kos in the winter of 309 when uh, when Ptolemy is launching an offensive against Greece, is, uh, is invading Greece to become king of Macedonia. Uh, and it's probably about this time to, to help that particular um, goal that he puts out the rumor that he's the illegitimate son of Philip II because that seems to tie him then to the Argian ruling family. So even illegitimacy in those days was considered important if you happen to be the illegitimate son of a king that is. Uh, and then um, then Ptolemy, then as I said, um, Berenice, that's the, the little baby's mother, then uh, starts working on her husband. She clearly wears the pants in the relationship. Starts working on him to, to prefer her son over the previous Ptolemy as the next ruler of Egypt. When you mentioned um, having a 50% chance picking, a, uh, picking the right name with, uh, with kings in... Uh, um, in in Fran France, before you actually said the two the two names, uh, Henry was what, what was the one that came to mind. <laughs> yeah, well, you've got Hon Henri, Philippe, and Louis, and really, you, I'd say you've got a thirty three point three percent chance of getting it right if you say one of those names. Uh, do you want to go swing back around and treat then what's known about his foreign policy uh, of his reign? Then we'll work our way to succession and wrap up the chat. Well, the foreign policy is, as I said, geared towards making Egypt a Mediterranean power, and that, that's Ptolemy's uh, really big, um, really big legacy for Egypt. I mean, he founds the Ptolemaic dynasty, which is the longest lived uh, of the Hellenistic dynasties. It comes to an end, of course, with Cleopatra the seventh in 30 BC. So it's around for almost 300 years. Uh, it's probably longer than uh, than some of those pharaonic dynasties that you were mentioning earlier. Uh, so his foreign policy is very much directed, as I said, to making, to, to, to putting Egypt on the map of the Mediterranean. And along the way, he gets involved in, um, in, in areas to his west and to his east. And west, of course, is Cyrene. Uh, east, of course, will be uh, Syria, Phoenicia. Uh, he's uh, expanding in, in that region, which, of course, brings him into conflict with Sol the Seleucid kings, uh, who think they control that area. Uh, he also uh, is coming into contact with islands like uh, nearby Cyprus. Uh, he's intent on building up a, a naval hegemony, so, so he spends a lot of time and effort on his fleet and builds up a sort of naval ascendancy over the Aegean. Um, he's even, we even find him campaigning on the shores, uh, well, on the coast of Asia Minor, modern Turkey, uh, digging away at some. Um, some Antigonid bases there. So again, this is the conflict with Antigonus Monothalmus and his son Demetrius Polyakates. Uh, and uh, but the the jewel in the crown, if you like, is King of Macedonia. Uh, it's one thing to say, 
okay, well, I rule Syria, I rule Egypt. Uh, but it's quite another to say, well, actually, I'm king of Macedonia. Because this is where it all started from. This is where Alexander was from. And Alexander um, brings about this vast empire from Turkey to Pakistan. And so everybody wants to be a second Alexander. But the key to being the second Alexander is king of Macedonia. It doesn't matter if you take over China, if you take over Australia, if you take over North America, if you're not king of Macedonia, you've not really made it. As I said, that's the jewel in the crown. And we see Ptolemy uh, working his way towards that uh, in 310 to 308, so a couple of years before he became king, as I told you, or took on, took on the title king. And we see him because he tries to broker a marriage alliance with Alexander the Great's sister Cleopatra, uh, who uh, Antigonus Monothamos views very suspiciously and actually puts her to death before she could marry Ptolemy. But you, you see how marrying her would give Ptolemy an awful lot of clout when it, came, when it comes to seizing the Macedonian throne. Um, he's puts, he puts out this um, rumour that, that he's the illegitimate son of Philip II, that's also to enhance his chances. And then he takes his army across there, but unfortunately everything collapses because Antigonus has, has put Cleopatra to death, so that means that Ptolemy cannot marry into the Argead family. Um, Cleopatra is actually Alexander's uh, full sister, not even a half-sister. So this really would have given uh, Ptolemy a, 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 an enormous amount of leverage in the wars of the successors. So you can see the foreign policy, as I said before, the foreign policy is two-pronged. It, it's to make Egypt a Mediterranean power, and he succeeds in that. It's also to make Ptolemy himself on the international scene uh, the king of Macedonia. At Cleopatra's either uh, assassination or execution, the, was, was that the moment where his efforts to invade the kingdom of Macedon ceased? Um, so, so he chose to call off those efforts for the reasons you described, or was there continued con conflict um, after that, that point as it pertains to him attempting to invade uh, the, the kingdom of Macedon? Yeah, he, call, he calls it off because he has to. I mean, he never gets the support of the Greeks. Uh, Cassander uh, is still king of Macedonia and he's got a, a more powerful army. So Ptolemy knows now that he doesn't have the, the, the two things he really, well, or the one thing he really needs, and that is to, to march to Macedonia as husband of the sister of Alexander the Great. That really would have given him the edge. The current king of Macedonia, Cassander, you see, was uh, in effect a usurper. Uh, and, and Ptolemy actually is taking a leaf out of Cassander's book because what Cassander has done uh, is to marry um, a half-sister of Alexander the Great and become regent of the young Alexander the Fourth. Uh, so they're, they're playing all these, uh, all these little games by, by marrying into the Argeat family. And, and you see again that here we are, what, what, it, what did I just say, 308. So here we are, what, nearly 20 years after Alexander the Great's died, and yet he is still part of all the operations. Um, it's like the ghost of Julius Caesar in Shakespeare. I mean, I mean, Caesar is murdered in Act 2, I think it is, and yet the whole play is five acts, and it's called Julius Caesar. So Alexander the Great's ghost, if you like, dominates events for, for decades after his death. 
And so Ptolemy realizes that his attempt has collapsed because he wasn't able to exploit a marital link with Alexander's family as Cassander had done. And so Ptolemy pulls out of there. Um, and he has to anyway, because there are a couple of, of things happening on his borders that he needs to attend to. Uh, but he doesn't give up. He doesn't give up on, uh, on wanting to get involved in Greek affairs. We find him later, for example, um, putting Pyrrhus of Epirus on the throne. This is a famous Pyrrhus uh, who will invade uh, Rome, uh, invade Italy, and have that uh, victory that, that where he won, but it cost him so many uh, of his own men that the term Pyrrhic victory comes from there. So you still see uh, you still see Ptolemy dabbling in Greek affairs. He, he supports Pyrrhus um, becoming king of Epirus. Uh, Ptolemy will send uh, troops to help the Athenians at one stage. Uh, but what he's doing here is more uh, of, of him being a player on the international scene and promoting Egypt on the inter international scene as opposed to, to using these sorts of operations to try to become king of Macedonia. Is there anything else then, Ian, that you want to cover in terms of his foreign policy and affairs? You covered a bunch of things there. Is there anything else that you feel you really want to get across in this episode before we move to the later, the later period of his reign in succession? Um, I don't think so, other, other, because we have covered an awful lot of stuff, other, other than um, to think about, as I said earlier on, uh, that this is an extraordinary individual. Uh, I mean, in, uh, I don't know what you did in your previous um, podcast with Charlotte Dunn, uh, but when you're looking at Alexander's campaign in Asia, Ptolemy's there, but he's definitely on the periphery. Um, you see him come in from time to time. I mean, Alexander says, so, okay, well, um, Bessus, who uh, set himself up as a great king when Darius III was assassinated, uh, and some locals, some local satraps ca uh, captured Bessus and say, okay, Alexander, we're going to hand him over to you, but you've got to send someone uh, to come and get him. And Alexander says, okay, Ptolemy, off you go, you go and get him. So occasionally, you see Ptolemy taking part in the action, but he's definitely a peripheral figure. Uh, you don't hear about what, what role he played in the, in the big battles that Alexander faced in Persia or in India. Uh, so he's always there and yet he's not, as I said, this peripheral figure. And then if Alexander had lived for another 10, 20, 30, 40 years or so, if his son had grown up and been old enough to succeed him as king in his own right, Ptolemy, would have, we wouldn't be having this podcast now. Or if we were, the podcast would be called Peripheral Figures or Minor Figures in Alexander's Reign. So here's this person who comes pretty much from nowhere and he's, he's a royal bodyguard and suddenly he's rubbing shoulders with senior generals and close advisors of Alexander at Babylon. And he's not afraid of putting himself forward. He's not afraid of saying, you know what, I think we should do this about the empire. Um, I, I think the days of a single empire are over, so why don't we try and get a committee together and we'll all be on it, we'll all govern the empire. So he, he's looking for a slice of power even then, within hours of Alexander dying. And then he goes to Egypt, and it's, this is deliberate. It was with Alexander when Alexander went to Egypt. So he's sussed out the place. He knows what it's like, and particularly he knows how defensible it is. 
And so he's very astute at wanting Egypt. And once he's got Egypt, he knows he can let the others sort of make war on each other and kill themselves off. He will come in from time to time when it's necessary. Um, but he's always got this, this eye on, as I said, being king of Macedonia, of expanding his territory, of making um, Egypt uh, far more of a, of a Mediterranean player than it was even under the pharaohs. And all this from someone who's always on the sidelines in Alexander's reign. So it's really quite extraordinary how he comes from nowhere and, and has this dominating influence for, for two or three decades and then goes on, of course, to found the longest lived of the Hellenistic dynasties. If Alexander lived for another 10 or 20 years, I have a feeling you still would have written uh, another book, but it just might not have been called Ptolemy the First. And we might have been chatting about a different a different related topic. Maybe it would have been uh, the later period of Alexander's life. Yeah, for sure. But I mean, what's what I mean, you mentioned book there and, and Ptolemy was also a scholar. I mean, he um, with, with the museum and the library, he wanted the, the, the period's foremost um, scholars and scientists and intellectuals to 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 live and work in LA. these are these were like this is like a research park the museum and the library was was like the north american research triangle so that this was this was a center for for science for mathematics for uh, for the study of literature uh, and he himself was no slouch i mean he patronized euclid in other words he funded euclid uh, who wrote his elements of geometry there now apparently, uh, Ptolemy couldn't understand this. It's like me with mathematics; I can't understand math at all. But the thing is, you know, Ptolemy's sort of saying, "Oh, hey, Euclid, yeah, you know, I like what you do. Here's some money. Go and do something else." And as I said, Euclid's elements of geometry were written at Alexandria under Ptolemy's patronage. Uh, and Ptolemy himself is a history writer. He wrote an account uh, of um, of his time with Alexander, and I, I think he wrote it towards the end of his life because we don't have anything in it about when Ptolemy is ruler of Egypt. And since Ptolemy enjoys um, elevating himself in things, I mean, he virtually breaks his arm, patting himself on the back about what a good job he does for Alexander. Um, we would certainly expect to hear things about uh, his uh, reign in Egypt and what a good job he's doing there. Um, but, but in addition to this soldier figure, I mean, he's brave, he takes part in battles, he leads men. Uh, he's a savvy diplomat, he's an astute person. Um, I mean, he's, he's ruler of Egypt for 40 years, let's not forget, 322 to 283. Uh, and uh, as well as that, he's a literateur. Uh, he writes his own um, history of Alexander. So this is a, a, a really um, polymath, rounded person. In closing, Ian, do you want to cover succession? Well, the succession, um, I, I, as I mentioned before, uh, Tommy's getting old now. I mean, all of these guys were in their 80s. I mean, they, they, they were no spring chickens when they invaded Asia in 334 with Alexander. But by the time you get to the 280s or so, towards the end of the wars of the successors, um, they, the first generation of successors, the ones who are still left alive, they're, they're well into the late 70s and 80s. Uh, Ptolemy is the same, uh, so he's slowing down, and he probably realizes that, and that's why in 285 uh, he taps uh, his son Ptolemy, that this is the one from his wife Berenice, uh, he taps uh, 
Ptolemy uh, II, as it would become known, to take over from him. And the two of them um, ruled Egypt together. Probably the, the dad, uh, the elder Ptolemy, is doing less, and the younger Ptolemy is being brought on board to do more, and also for the Egyptians to get used to him. Uh, and then I think this is probably the period when, when uh, the elder Ptolemy is devoted to writing his history because he's got time to do it now and he doesn't have to, to worry as much about running uh, Egypt. He doesn't, uh, he's not involved on the international scene anymore. And then uh, in 283, Ptolemy I dies and his son uh, becomes a single ruler without any problems whatsoever. And perhaps this is Ptolemy I's greatest achievement is that he's the only one of those first generation successors, the only one to die of natural causes in his bed. And in this day and age, that's quite an achievement. It was good chatting with you again, Ian. Thanks for coming on the show again. Thank you for having me, Andrew. I enjoyed it. Thanks very much. So a couple reference points here, everybody. I think earlier when I was referencing the previous episode, I might have mentioned Ptolemy I, Ptolemy I in that episode with Dr. Charlotte Dunn. So I want to make sure I pulled it up here and I want to make sure that I have the title correct um, so that if anybody is searching it, it comes up uh, properly online. So that's entitled Rise of the Ptolemies with Dr. Charlotte Dunn. That was published on August 3rd, 2021. Dr. Ian Worthington and I produced an episode again on May 27th, 2021 on King Philip II of Macedon, who was the father of Alexander III, King Alexander III. And uh, the couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Worthington wrote, he's author of Ptolemy I, King and Pharaoh of Egypt, and Athens After Empire, a history from Alexander the Great to the Emperor Hadrian. I'll drop links to all these references in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Ian and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Bye. Hey again. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast, and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.